0: I know, I Well, we are continuing in our study of Romans. <clears throat> we have been multiple weeks in chapters 9 to 11. This is our second full week in chapter 11 itself. And we are picking up in verse 11 of Romans 11. So, 11 11. Just as a little background, so that we can take it a kind of a running start into what we're dealing with here. Chapters 9 through 11 ultimately tackles the question is God finished with Israel? Has He given up on them? Or as he set them aside. And as we have discovered, um, Paul's writings are very clear that the answer is, well, no, of course not. Because if he were, he'd be done with me. Because I am a Jew. I am a part of the tree of Israel. So you have to ask the question, well, is he talking then, there are, well, let me just put it this way. In today's church, people will answer this question at least three different ways. And my guess is we will find all three of them in our own congregation. One way, say they would say, yes, God has finished with Israel because the church has supplanted Israel as the chosen ones. Within that, there are three different theological uh, pieces. So we have that, and that even splinters. So within the idea that yes, the church has supplanted Israel, you have a replacement theology, meaning that it is very specific that the church is what God speaks of when he speaks of Israel now. That's called the replacement theology. A second expression is covenant theology, in that the church is an expansion of what Israel was. Third idea is dispensational premillennialism, is that the church is completely different and distinct from Israel. And therefore is blessed accordingly now those are sound bites which means they're dangerous um, to base anything on but that's just like a very quick splash just to give you an idea of one area starting with the idea that yes God is finished with Israel spiritually the second way some people say sort of Kind of, sort of, but only the remnant within the Jewish people, the people of Israel, who follow Jesus will be considered chosen, since all who do follow him are chosen by God. All right, so that's part two. The third is absolutely not. God is not done with Israel. In fact, at the end of time, during the tribulation, Israel as a nation will rise up and follow Christ and become the the salvo against the fallen people because the Christians will have been raptured already. And so then God saves the church. Hal Lindsey, in his late great planet Earth, pretty much taught that. In fact, he proclaimed that when Israel was established as a nation in 1948, that Christ would come back during the first generation. And a generation was considered 40 years. I think he missed his calculation because that would have been 1988. There is a fourth category which was Basically tossed in my face in a book proposal I received that I was reviewing this past week.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Uns, you know, unsolicited. I, I get proposals, you know, twenty to fifty a week from people who wanting to write books. And I'm going to disguise this as the best I can in case this fella ever listens to this recording. <clears throat> But this is the uh, second page. It's the, it kind of leads off with saying, "I've discovered 19 secrets about our world and the God who created it that have been lost for centuries, and that these secrets will change the hearts and minds of anyone who's looking truly looking for meaning and direction in our life." All right, you know, I, I, I I'm used to that, <clears throat> but that isn't what I focus on. That's the immediate. No, thank you. I'm not interested. But here came the next paragraph. <laughs> this journey also took me into the question of why do so many cultures hate the jews which led me to ask my pastor will god save the jews now think about our original question here is god done with israel so this is why i'm bringing it up because here's a fellow who has heard this idea that god has finished with israel and the pastor replied He said, his answer was terribly disturbing, that unless they accept Jesus, they're all going to hell. I have many friends who are Jews. I mean, they're as devoted to their faith as I am to mine. They worship the same God I do. And my Bible even says that they are God's chosen people. So how could my God send his people to hell? I don't buy it. So in the other book I've written, I have proven that God has another plan. So anyone who has a Jewish friend will find comfort in this book. And it's my prayer that my Jewish friends may find hope and pride in what God has in store for them. And then he follows with a line. I think these are, time, these are timely words as world politics and social media continually expose how much we need to find ways to just get along. That's not uncommon my friends wow. in our society it's a laissez-faire when it comes to faith it's a laissez-faire you can believe whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody yeah. sir I mean you could like see some nods and that cuts back to this question in scripture because we talked about it last week week is God faithful We all say, yes, of course he is. Does God keep his promises? Yes, of course he does. Well, what were his promises? That I will bless my people. And so Paul's asking the question, well, if that's the case, has God failed to keep his promises? And of course he says, absolutely not. Has he rejected his people? Well, no. He said there's always a remnant. And then he uses the story of Elijah who said, I'm the only one. And God says, well, I actually have 7,000 waiting. Um, Besides you, you're not the only one. I'm taking care of my people. There will always be a remnant. So, lest you think I have an answer to this question, let me just dispense with that concept right here. (laughs) I am merely trying to say here are ways of looking at it and if you want to really get into a pitched battle with someone in church, use the air hockey table as a challenge and whoever wins must be the winner of the argument. That's how important it is. It doesn't change your relationship to God. It should not. It may change how you look at end times, which ultimately, we have no idea. When we were were teaching in uh, Thessalonians, I brought out all my books that predicted (laughs) when the end of time was coming. Um, The famous one was the one, and the the Lord was coming, 88 reasons why the Lord was coming in 1988. And the guy obviously missed. It wasn't Hal Lindsey, it was another fellow. And he then came out with a sequel because he had forgotten the year zero. (laughs) And so the next year came out a book while it was gonna be in 1989. The problem was, is while he was promoting that book, he was taking speaking engagements in 1990. Sorry, that's a deviation from my my lesson here. All I'm trying to say, these are big picture questions. We should explore them because they are in Scripture. And Paul is trying to answer these questions because he's being asked them all the time. Never forget Romans is written to a group of people, a church that he has never met. And he's been teaching and preaching to Jews and Gentiles for years. And so, even in how we set this up, even in you're looking at your handout where I have these little headers, you know, question, answer, you know, those aren't in Scripture. But he's anticipating the question before the question is asked. Yeah.
1: And I'm just gonna say, so he has a whole group of frequently asked
0: questions. Yes. He definitely is. He has an <laughs> FAQ on his website. <laughs> you know, so he can just you click through the you know polyapostle.com, and there's the FAQ. It's all there. It's called the Book of Romans. <laughs> so in that in the light of that Because we tend to take these and then pull out what we like and we don't like and then we put it into our framework that we've determined is the truth and then we argue about it. So let's just look at what the Word says. I would say one way to do this is let's read together verses 11 through 14 as a group. So we have at least this first section uh, together and you can see by how I've uh, rearranged it that it, instead of one just blur of text, you kind of see the Q&A format. Verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure mean riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Fascinating. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Does this mean that they're beyond recovery? Never forget, Jesus was a Jew. Barnabas was a Jew. Peter was a Jew. Thomas was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. They were all Jews. All of them. There was not a Gentile among the 12 apostles. Not a single one of them. So God, in his extraordinary plan of salvation, brings us to this conclusion of Jesus is the Son of God for the salvation of the world through the Jewish people. We can't forget that. We cannot ignore that. And just dismiss it as meaningless, because it's not meaningless. One fellow said, you know, if I were to be if I had written this passage, I would have done it this way. So I ask you, did they stumble in order they might fall? By no means. All Israel is gonna be saved. I would have given my conclusion right here. Well, that verse doesn't happen until verse 26, which is next. Two weeks from now in our lesson so the conclusion isn't even in this passage instead he's trying to express the implications of what this means so now we have this explanation rather that through their trespass salvation has come not to the jews to the gentiles So to make Israel jealous. And you go, well, that's kind of weird. Well, think of um, one of the beauties of the Christian life where the Christ that is in us or in you comes out in such a beautiful way that someone comes to you and goes, what's different about you? Why, why doesn't, why didn't that situation just destroy you? What gives you this strength? And you can say, because Jesus Christ is my Lord. Boy, we have an excited groom next door. Why don't we just open the window and let them in? (laughs) Sure. Yeah, we can say that. Maybe we should ask if they stumble in order that they fall. Uh. (laughs) Oh, that's terrible. Sorry. They're having a good time. It's just these walls are paper thin. (laughs) Now that's now a permanent part of our recorded record. Okay. So this idea that the salvation for the Gentiles is going to make the Jews jealous, you might go, well, that's kind of a weird statement. But he's already said it. He said it in chapter 10 of Romans. Verse 19, But I ask, did Israel not understand? Moses says, where he's quoting Deuteronomy 32, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. He's already tipped his hand in this argument. But to really see it, you have to go over to Acts. So, open your Bibles into Acts chapter 8. Right after the stoning of Stephen. So, Stephen has been stoned. He had had an extraordinary sermon. He is now uh, expired. I guess one way to put it. In verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of Stephen's, or his education, ad- Execution. That's the Paul of Romans. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Drop down to verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them the Christ. Then jump over to Acts 11. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And if you think of your map, you take Jerusalem, you're facing me, so you have west, east, north, south. You have Jerusalem's down here, Antioch is way up here. Cyprus is an island. I mean, you have to intentionally go there. You don't just walk in accidentally. So the word or the people have scattered away from Jerusalem. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord, Wait a minute, the Hellenists are not Jews. <laughs> this report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with his steadfast purpose. Uh, get down to verse 26. And when he found Saul, he came. So Barnabas went to Tarsus, looked for Saul. And when he found him, he brought Saul to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. This is the beginning of Paul's ministry. Not in Jerusalem. Up in Antioch. Antioch became, I would just kind of say, the foundation of the early Christian church. Not Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a mess. Um, We see that later on. But Antioch was where there was things happening. And it was from Antioch that Paul launched his first missionary journey. (coughs) Then you hop over to chapter 13. So you have Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. In verse 13, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. They went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. It's not the same Antioch of Syria. It's closer. It's in Turkey, basically, for lack of a better geographical connection. Um, You think of the book of Galatians. This is kind of where this happens. On the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brother, if you've had a word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, motioned with his hand, and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt he goes on and he goes on and he goes on. He's basically preaching, by the way, you know that one quarter of Acts is sermons? You know, I had one writer say, it shouldn't be called the Acts of the Apostles, it should be called the Sermons of the Apostles. Because literally one quarter of the book are sermons. And it's often when you're reading through it, there's a tendency to go, oh, I know what they're talking about. And you skip to the history. Don't you admit it? Because <laughs> you know they're, they, they're constantly going through the litany of the Old Testament history, showing their their argumentation, and you go yeah 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 yeah. Get to the good stuff when they get, when you're going to get killed, you know, because that's exciting. You know, that's what we put on Netflix. Anyway, you get all the way down to verse forty-three. And after the meeting at the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Imagine if that happened in Phoenix, called the Super Bowl. The whole city shows up. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? Jealousy. 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 You see why I am going through this story? They saw the faith. They saw the, the power of the message from a scattered people. A scattered people. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And it goes on the Lord said verse 47 the Lord has commanded us in Isaiah 49 6 I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth dang God has had in his plan from the time of Isaiah's writings that the Gentiles will be brought to him." Anyone who says that Paul invented Christianity because he couldn't convince the Jews doesn't understand their scripture. It's been part of this long story. So one writer asked a question and he didn't answer it. So I'm gonna ask it to the group. See if guys, you guys can come up with the answer. Would the gospel have gone to the Gentiles if Israel had not rejected the gospel? What if the Jews had accepted the gospel completely and believed that Jesus was the Messiah and the entire country went, yes! Would it have gone to the Gentiles? Sure. Yes. Sure? That'll You'd say Natural. naturally, but
1: god wishes for all to come to him Mm -hmm. chosen race chosen example to the world was israel Mm -hmm. and so one way or the other you know we were all going to have a chance
0: okay so to play a little bit of devil's advocate in the room where's the covenant to the gentiles (coughs) that's jesus dying on (laughs) Okay, <laughs> but we don't have a written covenant per se, or it's do we? It's, it's an assumed covenant. Well, let's be careful. What about the ingrafting where we become oh, ingrafting. legally? Yes. Well, that's a Jewish heritage. That's coming in the next Once verses. It's coming <laughs> in the next verses. Okay, sorry. <laughs> you <laughs> jumped ahead, <laughs> you, you got run gotta, of it. Run of the way. It's okay, it's okay, but it makes sense, okay? There's the Jeremiah passage, which talks about a covenant for the future, a new covenant. I'm just, go ahead. Um, To to Abraham, uh, through your seed, the world will
1: be, everyone will be blessed. Right, that everyone will be blessed. Okay, good. Anybody? What she
0: said. But she took, <laughs> <it>. <laughs> okay. you t- she took your thunder. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So I'm just wanting us all to be kind of thinking through this as Paul is trying to express what it means to have the Jewish people reject, but a remnant left, and the Gentiles suddenly become the thing, and now these Jews are jealous. So here's another question. (laughs) You're gonna love this one. I thought jealousy was a sin. God is a jealous God. Does God sin? I mean, I'm asking the question because, you know, it's kind of a bad thing, right? Or is it? You see, jealousy based on narcissistic things is wrong. Saying that is attractive to me, can you tell me more? I would like that not from a gimme, gimme, gimme. It's a quest for improvement, especially on a spiritual level. So we have to be careful. We don't go, oh yeah, it's a good thing to make someone jealous. Mm. Um, depends on your situation, let's just make sure our language is, is, is appropriate and correct. As I wrote here, we made, to make Israel jealous, not to drive away, but to attract. See, there's a difference. There's that idea of making them jealous so that they turn away. No, it's to, to make them turn around. Now, you come down to uh, you, you, verse twelve. Their trespasses can mean riches for the world, and their failure mean riches for the for the Gentiles. How much more will their full inclusion mean? Someone's made the comment that, uh, and I, I you, know, you always have to keep things in context to what they're trying to say. But if you find in today's world, a, someone who has been raised Jewish and has been very, uh, very strong believer in the Jewish traditions <laughs> and the Jewish religion, if they convert, it's a big deal. And they're vocal about it very vocal about it, because their entire life has been changed. It just popped in my head I remember, oh golly so we put this in context, so uh, college, summertime, needing a job, I applied to the city of Honolulu where I'm going back home, I was going to be home for the summer, and I applied for a job in the, as an intern in the accounting department of the city. And they gave me a job in parks and recreation as a athletic director. (laughs) Thank you, government. Wasn't even a check box on the application. But I get this, please report to this park and you will be the athletic director. I'm like, what? Okay. So, but I had a chance to uh, share my faith with some of the kids that were there. And there was this 12-year-old young boy, and he's Buddhist, grew up in the Buddhist home, and man, he was curious about Christianity. He wanted to know everything. And he'd pull me aside, and he'd ask me questions, and then we'd get involved in other things. And he'd pull me aside, ask more questions. And finally, I got to that point of saying, well, you need to make a decision. And he looked me right in the eye. He said, if I choose this, I can't go home. So I'm going to say no. I didn't know how to answer. I was too young.
1: Um...
0: You know, I didn't have enough experience to... I was just blown away by that response. But I thought, let's say he was 19 or 20. Would he have been able to pull away from his family? Or become a witness to his family? So we talk about these folks in these persecuted areas. This is what they're faced with every day. And they're not just faced with familial rejection. They're faced with death and destruction. Anyway... Sorry, not in my notes, just something that popped in my head, thinking about this. The immensity of what's being talked about here. Verse 13, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, because I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make fellow Jews jealous and maybe save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead. So let's turn to verses 16 and following, and let's read that out loud together, and we will focus the rest of our time on this metaphor. But then we all have it together, and we've all heard it, so when I'm uh, teaching it, it's not new. Start with verse 16. If the dough offered its first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches are broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches are broken off so that I might be grafted in. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even then, if they they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? What a picture.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you just kind of read that, it kind of kind of obvious, or is it? There's metaphors here. There's, he's drawing word pictures. I mean, he starts with the idea of first fruits using bread. I mean, what an odd thing. And yet, all the way back to Numbers. I'm gonna find it here, Numbers 15. 17 to 21 the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the people of Israel and say to them when you come into the land to which I bring and when you eat of the bread of the land you shall present a contribution to the Lord of the first of your dough you shall present a loaf as a contribution like a contribution from the threshing floor so shall you present it some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. It's Numbers 15, 17 to 21. So this would not be news if they know their Torah, if they know their law. When we talk about tithing, this is another form of the idea of giving your first fruits to God. But that's not the metaphor. He's not talking about tithing here. He's talking about, well, what's being offered? If it's holy, then is all of it holy? Yes, he's trying to say. I'm not just picking out a little tidbit in a morsel. The whole lump is holy and are the branches. As one person put it, holy root equals holy fruit. (laughs) Clever. But then he has this symbolism of the olive tree and the wild olive shoot. I wish Johanna was here because I'm gonna try to draw a tree. <laughs> I'm glad she's not here yes, yes. because you know this would be bad. Um, anyway, I actually thought about this when I wrote it. I went, oh, Johanna's gonna say, can I have it? <laughs> help? help. So, you have the idea of a tree. Good so far. Okay, beautiful tree. Better than me. Now, if we want to look at the symbolism here, the root, so the roots down here, is the covenant. That's that promise, that's the basis of this relationship. The tree itself, just for the metaphor, okay? And remember, all metaphors break down. So if we want to get too picky, this whole thing will fall apart, the tree will fall over, and we'll have a nice kindling. Um, But the tree itself is Israel, so the root is here. Out of that root comes, out of the root of Jesse comes Israel. If you want to take it, it's not in the passage itself, but you think of the inner working of a tree, you have the sap that kind of comes up. Well, those are the blessings from God that feeds the tree itself. However, there are some branches that break off and they lay on the ground. Oh... Sorry, bad trees. Okay, these are the unbelievers. Now you take the wild olive and you graft them on to the tree. They weren't there originally, but they have been grafted on. And this is the Gentile. And this is the unbeliever. Unbelieving Jew, right? So you kind of get the picture that he's trying to draw. The best art in the world, but at least you get the idea. Some of the branches were broken off. And it's interesting, Paul changes the you from plural to singular here. And you, and the rest of this passage, anytime you see the word you, it's singular. So he's getting very specific with the Gentiles. Some of the branches are broken off, and you, although a wild shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now you share in the nourishing root of the tree. Interesting picture. So, a couple different things popped in my head. One of them is in our backyard. <clears throat> when we bought the home a bazillion years ago, we walk in the backyard and kind of walk over and. You turn and you look at this tree, and it's half orange, half lemon, same base. Now, I'm a city boy. I'm not used to this. What is wrong with this tree? (laughs) This is not possible. Those are two different plants, aren't they? No, they're both citrus. They share the same root system but they bear different kind of fruit. Now, it, it destroys this metaphor, but you get this idea of a grafting, and both are healthy. Now, whoever did it didn't choose edible oranges, they chose the, oh, the, the, yes. the yes. fake yes. ones. Yes. However, I have heard that you really, if you do graft the edible orange with a lemon, the orange becomes inedible. No? True. I
1: thought it was grafted on eleven
0: to begin. And well, this is my. This has been my question. Because I, there was Lisa and I were talking a little bit about this. That apparently there have been. Uh, it's not an uncommon practice here in the citrus world, mm-hmm. to do some grafting partly to create a healthy shoot, which then they can take off and replant, yeah. because they're taking from a healthy tree, making a new shoot healthy, and then planting. Yeah,
1: yes. there's a cocktail tree in citrus where you can have different parts with
0: different kinds okay. of citrus. Okay. Yeah. So I started digging into, in my typical getting off on um, <laughs> very wild rabbit trails, <laughs> I decided to look into the olive tree itself and some of its history, some of its background, because we taught, you know, we've been teaching through the Bible for years, and I was trying to think in my notes, my time, especially in the Old Testament, did we ever talk about the olive tree? And I don't think we did. We talked about the fig tree because Jesus confronted one, and so we talked about the fig tree, but not the olive tree. There are over 200 mentions of the olive tree Olive oil or olives in the Bible. It's everywhere. And I'll tell you, when I started looking at it, I was like, whoa, it's, oh, 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 it's everywhere. What is the first mention of the olive in the Bible? Would it be Noah? Exactly. The dove is let loose and comes back with what? An olive olive leaf or branch. And it was said it was fresh, which signified that the water had receded. Of course that has driven botanists nuts. Because if you drown an olive tree, it dies. So the idea is that the water came up and then the water came down. And those trees were still viable. It wasn't like they were brand new growth. It was that there had been, there was enough that they survived. They flood, interesting. And at the higher regions. So obviously the way the, the whole water thing, the whole, that whole story, we tend to pull all that apart. But we have the olive branch is a symbol for? Peace. peace. Why? He
1: killed all of the <laughs> There was nobody left. There
0: was nobody <laughs> left, and it was a symbol of restoration and peace in the land, etc., etc. And then you can—that's where it became this uh, symbol forever. You go to Jerusalem, and right across the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives. Olives. So I have this picture in my head, when I was able to go there as a college student on a tour of the of the, of the Holy Land. And we went to the Mount of Olives, and we went to the, at the bottom of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. And you walk into the Garden of Gethsemane and there's these massive, gnarled, twisted olive trees, and they are, Luscious, they're alive, but they're big and just totally gnarled. And I, you know, part of our group, this one lady, she broke away from the group and hustled over, fell to her knees, and she was praying. And she got back up and came over to the group. and Says, "I just prayed under the tree that Jesus prayed under." And we all, you know, that's what kind of neat idea. Let's all do that. Until the guide said, um, in 70 AD, the Romans cut them all down. (laughs) (laughs) When they destroyed Jerusalem, they did not leave a stone unturned and they literally cut down all of the trees on this area. All of them. So what we have now are the grandchildren. Or the children of those original trees. And he even said, We're not sure how old these things are, but they are well over a thousand years old. That's incredible. They're like the redwoods of the desert climate.
1: However, Steve, if they didn't take the trunks out, dig the trunks,
0: probably would have been too hard.
1: Yeah, so sure the trunks sprout again.
0: Well, in fact, Lisa and I were talking about all the trees yesterday. He says, "Well, you recognize because a lot of them just have all these sprouts Mm
1: -hmm.
0: pointing up around them because they're they're like weeds. They just they will they keep going." Well, uh, let's see. I dug into a very old book. This is called *The Natural History of the Bible*. This particular edition is from 1911. But the first edition was in 1867. This fella, according to the preface, spent an entire year in Palestine with a a botanist and a zoologist collecting samples of every animal plant that they could. And he wrote this entire book. I mean, you pick something. I mean, the leopard, there's a whole article on leopard the uh, the sheep the how birds nested the eagle all of that's in this thing and it's 150 years old which i found fascinating now you'll you'll hear what i because i'm going to read from it rather than having a modern look it's a look at the way it looked like much closer in history well by 150 years at least but there was no modern inventions. So the agrarian society is very, um, very evident. He writes about the oil. The produce of oil is enormous, 10 to 15 gallons per tree. I did not know that. And which made it interesting because in First uh, Kings 5.11, King Solomon sent the king of Tyrus, King Haram, 100,000 gallons of olive oil for trade. That's the oil of 10,000 trees, which meant there were probably a few of them to draw from because that was the extra for trade. The fruit of the olive is one of the first necessities of life in the East. Not only does the lamp depend on it because candles are rarely used. And I thought, oh, why don't you just flick on a switch? Oh, oh wait, this is 1860 when he wrote this. Um, these little guys weren't around. There wasn't a power grid. Candles were rarely used and were much more costly, but it supplied the place of butter. Each dish is cooked with olive oil, and the bread is dipped in it. The soap of the country is exclusively made from it. The berry, when pickled, is the husband's men's only relish, and when he goes to the field for his day's work, his dinner consists of a handful of olives wrapped in the thin, tough barley cake. Habakkuk, therefore, strongly attests his faith in God when he says, although the labor of the olive shall fail, I will still rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk 3.17 It's also used as a medicine, valuable for wounds and bruises. The Good Samaritan applied olive oil to the person he found in the road and was rubbed on the body after a bath. It was employed to dress the hair. We find this in Psalm 22 and Matthew uh, 6. And to mix with the offerings of sacrifice, in Leviticus 2.1, and for the anointing of priests, kings, and prophets. The wood is very handsome, has a rich amber color, and finely grained, and is still largely employed in the finest cabinet work. It supplied the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant and the doorposts of the Temple of Solomon. I had no idea. So, let me just take you on my rabbit trail a little further. Is, is the olive tree native to Arizona? I don't
1: know. a lot of them grow here. Hmm?
0: They were imported in 1930. They did not, they were not here before. In 1986, the Phoenix City set an ordinance that declared that the selling and planting of olive trees is a public nuisance. (laughs) Quote, large amounts of allergenic airborne pollens are now are noxious and can contribute to human disease and health problems. So there's a law here. What year, what year was that? 1986. This, we'll remember this. Camelback used to be surrounded by big olive trees. The old sanctuary right here. Really? Yeah. Or,
1: and George had them all taken out. You know, George was allergic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well
0: and that's what they're saying. There was a real problem yeah, sure. with olive trees. The Olea Europa version. There are olive trees that you can find at the nurseries. You can buy them, and you can plant them in your home, but they don't bear fruit. So those are okay. In fact, there's a quote from a guy who has an olive oil farm out in Mesa. He's very upset of this ordinance. He said, the windborne part pollen only travels hundred feet and only lasts for two weeks a year. What's your problem? Um, anyway, it takes 14 years for a tree to start being mature, to be even bear fruit in 40 years until they, they declare it mature. Oh, wow. That's the olive tree that Paul is referring to. This, when you say Camelback was surrounded by it, I mean, you go up and down Camelback, Lisa was pointing out, because I, I didn't know what I was looking at. I didn't, oh, that's an olive tree, I didn't know. It's kind of green, kind of bluish green. Um, that all down Camelback Road on the uh, north side, olive tree after olive tree after olive tree. And they were planted intentionally because they're all equally spaced. It was part of the flora and fauna and the beauty and the landscaping of our city. Before 1986. They're everywhere. (laughs) You go to Israel and they're everywhere. You find the oil presses, which they had these extravagant apparatus that were created you know, thousands of years ago. And if you go to an archeological dig, you will find the leftover shoots where the oil would pour out, but nothing else. Because that either that olive tree uh, farm has been destroyed or what happens if you don't tend to the tree, it dies. You have to constantly shape its roots You've got to pull away to give air to them. Or they just simply start to wither. Isn't that interesting? That Paul would pick probably one of the most common things. If he had just said tree. Then we're going, yeah, uh okay. You know, which tree? we got lots of them. I mean, what if he would used the eucalyptus tree? Or the Palo Verde tree? I mean, it would have been a completely different metaphor. He takes the tree that represents food, medicine, health, everything, and said, that's Israel. But some of you won't believe and they fall off. So we take the wild growing ones, the ones that have not been cultivated, the ones that are just growing along the sidewalks that are... Eh, they're not in very good shape. And we're going to take that, the Gentiles, we're going to graft them into this tree, and you won't be able to tell the difference. So that metaphor has also driven botanists nuts because they say it's the wrong way around. In verse twenty get my verse here correct verse 24 for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature they would find the wild olive tree and take a shoot from the good one and put it in and it would draw from that and become a good one just the opposite so some try to make Spiritual application, spiritual application out of that. It's possible. Paul's entire point here is to say that the Gentiles are part of God's plan. And that those in Israel who break off, who will not believe, they're going to fall away. But then he says, however, I have the ability to graft them back on. Now, you and I know that if you cut off a branch from any tree of any sort and lay it on the ground in your backyard, you come back to that branch two weeks later, um, it ain't alive anymore. There's no hope for this guy. It goes into the bulk trash but God is saying that branch, I have the ability to put it back on the tree and give it life. Oh my goodness sake, what a picture, what a picture. And yet we have this, you know, underlying warning from Paul saying, so you Gentiles now think you're pretty special you're going to get all full of yourself and start going we believe you don't we get the blessing bad Jews go away there's even the British uh, uh, the British Israelism that came out in the 19th century said that the 10 lost tribes of Israel Are now the Anglo-Saxons and are, are the ones who now receive God's blessing therefore all Jews need to die and he sent Semitism in its worst form this came out of that idea that God has not is no longer blessing the people of Israel so we have to be so careful When we start doing this, saying, oh, well, it comes down to the idea of unbelief. It's not a racial thing. James Montgomery Boyce uh, took this warning in this passage to heart. He spent an entire sermon talking about the history of the church in our world. He put it this way, if you read Revelation 2.3, you can see that amidst the vitality, there were already signs of serious problems. There were moral compromise, doctrinal laxness, spiritual indifference, seal without love. Jesus had warned the churches that he would come and remove the candlestick if they did not repent. Many of the early church fathers that came out of Asia Minor, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Gregory of Nyssa, but after them, the church lost its vision, it declined and then it disappeared. Every single one of the seven churches of Revelation have ceased to exist. And once the Muslims conquered Turkey, Christianity disappeared. Today the land where Paul did so much of his ministry is now a mission field. In the same lines we can think of the church in North Africa that that produced Origen, Augustine, Tertullian, some of the greatest thinkers of the early church. They lost its vitality and was eventually taken over and today North Africa remains solidly Islamic. From a birthplace of great theologians, North Africa is one of the hardest areas to witness. Then he moved to Italy and starts talking about the Roman Catholic Church and how it had lost its way. And then the Protestant Reformation comes and You see all the beautiful churches, he called them the stately churches of France, Sweden, Denmark, England, and Norway, that today stand empty. They have a form of religion, but they deny the true power of God. And then he turns his eyes to America. And boy, that part of the sermon started to hit home the danger of this idea that hey yeah we're part of the tree we don't need to be care we don't need to be concerned about our theology so there was a cartoon by Doug Marlett that showed a jeopardy form of um, scene you know the final jeopardy where you write down the answer and then they pop up you know what people wrote and the end an- the question was name the Trinity and it was, it, by the way, this particular form of Jeopardy was part of the joke, was um, sponsored by the Presbyterian USA General Assembly. The first person wrote, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ding, 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 ding. Second person wrote, Mother, Child, and Womb. The third person said, Rock, Redeemer, and Friend. And the fourth one wrote, Rock, Paper, Scissors. But the caption of the cartoon was, bad news, we just got word that the Episcopalians are praying for
1: us.
0: (laughs) Obviously, the point is, you start theological drift, you end up with empty churches. Once you leave the solid rock of biblical authority, you step into the quicksand of public opinion, where anything goes and no one can tell you that you are wrong. So when we look at this passage and we step back from it and we look at the tree and we look at the promise to the people of Israel the promise to the Gentiles to become part of the family of God which those of us who are part of the family of God receive this blessing Our view, we tend to look at the outward, God looks at the inward. We value popularity, God values character. We admire intelligence, and God looks at the heart. We are impressed with those with money, and God honors those with integrity. We talk about what we own, and God talks about what we give away. We boast about those people that we know, but God notices those that we serve. We value education and God values wisdom. We live for fame and God searches for humility. Our view is temporary and God's view is eternal. This picture of the promise of God to his people, Jew or Gentile, there's no Jew, nor Greek, no male, nor female. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and confess with your mouth that he is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That is the message of Romans 9 through 11. And we will continue this theme next week. Two weeks. Two weeks, two weeks. sorry. Right, two weeks. Yes, next week. Don't expect me to talk. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Again, you just open up so much, so much interesting information and background and depth to what seemingly is words we just pass over, and we read when we reading your word. I just love this about your word is that we could we could come back to this passage again next week and spend another hour. And still not plummet steps. Lord, thank you for the blessing to have this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.